Hey, welcome to Optimize Your Body with Martin Silva, where we talk raw, uncut facts to truly help you optimize your body. Hey, ladies and gents. So I've got an awesome guest here today, a guy who's inspired me very much, goes by the name of Sal Di Stefano, uh, sorry, that's pronunciation, pronunciation there, Sal Di Stefano, and he is one of the co-hosts of Mind Pump Media. How you doing over there, Sal? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me on. No problem, mate. Thanks a lot for chiming in, mate. Really appreciate it. But yeah, just for the listeners, a lot of the stuff that I talk about, I would say at least 80-90% of the stuff I talk about on podcasts uh, has all come from the information that I've learned from the podcast Mind Pump Media. So... Happy to have Sal on, and I guess I'll just dive straight into the first question, Sal, if, if that's all good, mate. Yeah, that's that's great, and thanks for the, the kind words. I appreciate it. No worries, mate. So, yeah, the, I'm going to talk mainly first about health and, I, I guess, kind of the physical side of stuff before we delve into the deeper stuff. But, yeah, the first question was, if someone asked you the, the, the fastest way to lose body fat, what would you tell them? Oh, the fastest way. Now that's different than the than the right way. Um, oftentimes, uh, yeah, I remember as a, as a trainer, people would hire me and they'd want to know the fastest way to you know see results. And um, I would ask them if they wanted to learn the, the fastest way, or if they want to learn the right way. So if you just want pure speed, I mean that's pretty easy. Um, burn a lot of calories and don't eat very many calories. I mean at, at the end of the day, it's calories in versus calories out. And um, you know if you're just trying to lose 15 pounds in a hurry. And you don't really care if it's muscle or body fat. You just want pounds off of your body. Then move a lot. Do a lot of activity. Um, and restrict your food intake. Cut your food intake down to where you're not eating very much. Now, of course, that's not the right way <clears throat> to lose weight. Um, it, it, you may end up losing a lot of muscle as the body tries to adapt to that approach by slowing its metabolism down. It starts to pare muscle down. And make you more of an efficient person at doing all the activity and, and consuming low calories. So you'll end up losing a lot of muscle. And some studies will show that the diet and move a lot approach uh, many times results in uh, about half of the weight uh, being muscle. And in my experience training clients, sometimes it's even more uh, because, again, the body tries to adapt. So you figure if you lose 15 pounds, you know, seven pounds of it may be muscle mass, which now means you have a slower metabolism. Um, so that can definitely uh, be a problem. So if I were to do this the right way, uh, well then I'd take a much more long-term approach. The goal would be to speed your metabolism up to make you stronger through resistance training. Um, we would look at nutrition, uh, step by step and slowly apply things that can, uh, that you can change that are realistic for you to change. Um, and over time make larger, more fundamental changes and the although you may it may take longer to lose the weight, uh, the odds that will stay off permanently are are much higher. And of course, the kind of weight that you lose uh, is going to be a little better. Lifting weights and uh, eating properly results in all the weight being body fat and none of it being muscle. And in fact, if you lift weights, you'll probably end up increasing muscle mass. Um, and, and and sometimes the scale even reflects that. You know, I've had clients who will lose 10 pounds on the scale, but then we'll do a body fat test and, and realize that they actually lost about 13 pounds on the scale, uh, th- 13 pounds of body fat and gained about three pounds of muscle so that the scale only shows a 10 pound loss, but doesn't show the muscle gain. Great. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Cause I always, I always tell people you can either do it the, the fast way or the right way. So, uh, it's always, it's always a good little, uh, 
bomb to drop that one in there because it is true. Obviously, if you look at the bigger game, all the stuff you mentioned there is absolutely spot on. And how do you... Um, a battle I have with people, Sal, nowadays is, is getting people to slow down. Now, you talk a lot about this on your podcast, and I still really struggle with a lot of people when it comes to them cutting back on calories um, and doing too much kind of too much in general, like too, too much high-intensity cardio. You know, generally they're, they're under high stress with their work and stuff. So have you got any methods which you use to, to, to help, like, for example, clients you've had as a personal trainer or people you coach online, you know, getting them to slow down and maybe eat more calories? Yeah, it, you know, a large part of what your job is as a personal trainer, as a fitness professional, is being able to effectively communicate the the right way to approach, um, you know, whatever, whatever it is, whether it be weight loss or, or improvements in fitness. And the reason why I say that is, you know, you as a trainer, um, you know what it takes to get somebody's body and health to change. You also know how difficult it can be for people. And you know it's a fundamental change. In other words, that person will have to live differently um, uh, to, to to look differently. They have to live differently. Absolutely. And, and that doesn't happen uh, overnight. And so you need to communicate that in a way that's 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 effective so people get it. Mm-hmm. I think one one of the best ways to do that is to tell people, whatever you do to get in shape is what you have to do to stay in shape forever. Mm, so whatever like approach is now, you know it doesn't matter what your approach is, but whatever it is at this moment, if that's what got you to where you 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 want to be, well, guess what? That's what you have to do forever. And so, you you know, because I think a lot of people approach uh, fitness and, and nutrition with the mentality that I'm going to follow this plan until I get to my goal. And then I'll go back to the way I was before, as if it's a temporary thing. Mm. And it just doesn't work that way because the body reflects what you're doing uh, right now. It reflects your current lifestyle. So when you're looking at, and we have to, you know, we have to appreciate the, the difficulty of this, um, and we have to be able to communicate the, this to people because <clears throat> changing behaviors, fundamental behaviors, is not easy. It's not an easy thing. I mean, it's one thing to get somebody to change how they live uh for a few months and that requires an incredible amount of discipline but it's a whole thing another thing entirely to change how they live forever Mm. like you're never going to go back to how you were living before because the minute you do then your health and your body will go back to how it was before so how do we approach large big fundamental lifelong changes you do it one step at a time and the, the way that they are effective, really the only way that anything is effective is by taking a, a change that is challenging because it has to have meaning. It's got to have a little bit of meaning for you. If it's too easy, there's no, there's no meaning behind it. But it's got to be easy enough to where you know that you can do it, okay? okay. Now, that's going to be different from person to person. So that may mean for one person uh, that uh, they can commit to a 15-minute walk three days a week. Like that's enough of a challenge for them where it's going to mean something, but it's also something that they know they can for sure commit to right now. Like they know like, okay, I've got a decent shot at success with this one goal forever. And then what they do is they go after it and they do it and then they try it. And it's still kind of hard. It still challenges them, but they're able to stick to it because it's a small enough change to where they can do it. And then once they've stuck to it, and it's something that they has now become a part of their life, like anything else that's a part of your life. You know, think about all the things you do on a daily basis 
that are a part of your life. You don't have to like wake up and motivate yourself to do those things. They've just become a part of of what you do. Once it's become a part of your life in that way, where now I'm doing my 15-minute walk three days a week or whatever, then you can look at something else and say, okay, now I'm doing this. What else can I do? Okay, now I want to add resistance training once a week. Uh, I think I can do that and I think I can stick to that forever and then apply that. And then what's the next thing? I think I can eat more vegetables or I think I can uh, reduce my soda consumption by half or whatever. That's the only way to make lifelong uh, fundamental changes in your life. Now, there is another way to make lifelong changes, but it's also a very unrealistic one. And that's what the the epiphany moments that we tend to have when you know big things happen. But those are extremely rare. Um, you can't count on that. You know, uh, an example of that would be somebody who needs to lose weight who just can't seem to get themselves to the gym, uh, but then uh, they have a heart attack. So they have this huge life-threatening event, and then that big event was enough to completely change their lives. But you know, keep in mind that doesn't even happen <laughs> with, with situations like that. Oftentimes, no. so really, what you're looking at is it's going to be an incremental change. It's going to be slow, and I have to approach it that way. Otherwise, my chances of, of success are you know close to basically close to zero it's really the only way to do it absolutely and uh, it's great what you said then about because we always tend to a lot of people tend to attach whatever they've done to getting in shape right so you said like you know because it's so it's so kind of rife nowadays with people blasting major like crazy types of cardio high intensity training and whatnot and then obviously cutting back on calories whatever to lose body fat and then it's it's kind of as you, as you guys always talk about it's the the on or off mentality right they're either on or they're off and the only way they know to actually achieve what they want to achieve in terms of whether that's physique or whatnot it normally is it is by doing what they've done right so yeah so the incremental approach works the best are yeah Yes, it is, and it's it's a it's a look at it as a practice, like anything else. Mm. You know, if I I want to learn how to get better at something, it's gonna it's gonna take me, um, you know, daily, you know, little by little progression. I mean, and really, you know, it's, you know, I say the long term approach, and I think people get discouraged because they think it's gonna take fifteen or twenty years. Look, if I took if I took two parallel lines and I moved one one degree into a different direction, just one degree. If, I, if we follow those lines uh, for a few miles, you'll see the distance between them will grow quite large. You know, if, if you make small incremental but permanent changes um, to your life, uh, to your nutrition, to, you know, add exercise, and you do that and you do that consistently, you will be a different person in a year. You'll be a totally different person in a year. And it'll be done in a way to where this is now how you live because the statistics are – that if you try the old approach of, you know, okay, I need to get in shape. I'm going to go hammer myself. Okay, I'm going to just completely change my diet all at once. The odds that that's going to succeed for you are slim to none. Uh, mm. You're not going to succeed. Why spend your time on some, you know, what, do you th- what makes you think that you're so different that you're going to be able to tackle it all at, all at the same time all at once? It's a very difficult process if you do it that way. But if you do the incremental changes the small ones that you challenge yourself. And it, by the way, this looks different for, uh, for, for different individuals. I've had clients where they, it was so difficult for them to tackle nutrition. And these are, these are extreme cases. Most people aren't this bad. But I've had clients where I said, okay, um, are you able to uh, eliminate your candy consumption? And I'm like, uh, you know, well, maybe. And I said, okay, can you do it forever? Well, no, I can't. I, 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 
you know, maybe I'll definitely binge if I end up doing that. Okay, can we change this? Can we change that? And we've got it all the way down to um, eat one, just add one serving of vegetables twice a week. And that's where they started. You know what I mean? Mm. And it was something very, very small. And then they stuck to it. Um, and then we slowly changed and added something else. Well, you know, a couple of years later, this person's diet has fundamentally changed and it's part of their life now. Mm. That's exactly yeah, that's And that's exactly the approach. When I've taken that approach with clients, they're always the ones who, who generally get the, uh, the long-term sustainable results, you know? So, yeah. Uh, talk to us a little bit about stress management. Sal, because I've just, I kind of started meditating last year and then I became slack and stopped really. So I've started again now and I just, I've literally started by doing just two to five minutes a day. But what do you, because I really envy you guys how you've managed to grow as a business and continue to grow. And also the fact that, you know, you and Justin have got kids and you've all got a lot going on, uh, all four of you. So is there anything you practice to manage your stress? And I don't know, I know you always mentioned kind of supplements such as ashwagandha and whatnot. Yeah, anything you could share with the listeners would be great, mate. Well, uh, for, first, number one and most fundamental thing is to um, have good quality sleep. Um, nothing will reduce your ability to handle stress uh, or handle your day-to-day stress, I should say, both physically and, and mentally than getting poor sleep, nothing at all. Um, so if you, if you really want to make a big difference, you know, obviously we want to look at the things that are going to make the biggest difference, the single things that make the biggest difference, and that's sleep. So I recommend everybody um, ritualize the process of sleep by doing what's, what I call a sleep routine. Um, and, and this is actually not as crazy as it sounds. Um, so to give you an example, I'll have like a – I was just talking to a client the other day about this and what I'm having him do is uh, about two to three hours before bed I tell him to try to turn off um, all electronics um, and to dim the lights in his house now that's not uh, something that's uh, reasonable on a consistent basis he has a business he has to work um, he has kids you know that kind of stuff so it, so I what I told him is I said okay uh, if you can't do that wear some blue light blocking glasses because what they'll do is they'll reduce the amount of light that uh, the brain perceives as daylight um, that also kind of prevents the, 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 the sleep process from being quality. In fact, some studies show that using blue light blocking glasses about, uh, I believe it was 90 minutes before bed, increased melatonin production by, uh, I think it almost doubled it. And melatonin is the hormone that's produced by the brain when you're sleeping and it's, it's part of it helps you recover and low melatonin levels were connected to inflammation and Alzheimer's and, and cancer. So I tell people about two to three hours before bed, put on blue blockers or turn off electronics. That actually makes a big difference. The second thing I tell them is to go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time uh, every day. Um, it really does a number on your body when your bedtime and your wake up time fluctuate on a regular basis like some people will be like oh on the weekend i just i go to bed super late but then i wake up super late they actually find that that reduces the uh the benefits that we get from sleep so i tell people set your time your bedtime and set your wake up time try to make it about eight hours um everybody's a little bit different but uh eight hours seems to be the the right around generally how much people need so that's number one mm -hmm. uh you uh, try not to have lots of stress before bed, turn the lights off, or like I said, wear the blue light blocking glasses, 
uh, you know, don't have any stimulants right before bed and get a good eight hours of sleep. That'll make a big difference alone. Sorry, so you mentioned, only quickly, you mentioned stimulants. What would you say about caffeine? And like, I mean, I know everyone's different, but like cutting that off at a certain time, do you think is a good idea? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't, I I don't recommend people drink caffeine after about 3 p.m. in the evening, uh, typically. Now, everybody, you're right, is a little bit different, but they even find people with with an incredible tolerance for caffeine it still decreases the quality uh, of their sleep, even even those people. Mm. So um, I would say definitely um, try to reduce your caffeine intake or not have it past a certain time. Three or four p.m. is seems to be the right the right time for most people who go to bed around uh, ten p.m. in the evening. Great. Um, yeah. The other thing too is you know stress is a is a part of life. Stress gets the body to adapt and change, so it's not a bad thing. But we want to, What we want to do is we want to uh, manage the most common forms of stress that we encounter in modern life, um, which is very different than the kinds of stress that that we may have encountered thousands of years ago. You know, thousands of years ago, stress was very high and acute. You know, it's like big, crazy event happening right now, and then I survive and I'm safe and it's over. We don't really get that nowadays. We're not getting threatened by animals. They're not going to, you know, come and eat us and kill us. We're not getting threatened by, you know, it's relatively safe nowadays and you know, we have food readily available. Um, so we don't have those crazy acute, you know, events as often. I mean, we still get some of those, but not like we used to. But what we end up getting is a lot of this low to moderate level incessant type of stress, like co- emails 24 hours a day and text messages and, you know, worry and the news is on 24 hours a day and that kind of stuff. And so I, I tell people to try to practice uh mindfulness being in the present moment and being in the present moment tends to take our focus off of the those incessant types of stress it it gets us to stop thinking of the little things that bother us uh or worrying about some of the stuff in the future not that you need to always do that but having breaks really makes a big difference so uh, one thing i'll tell people to do is you try to unplug um from your electronics certain you know at certain times of the day I go on my phone and I work on social media, but I only do so now at certain times of the day. Other times I don't even, I ignore it, I ignore it. And so that's, that's actually helped quite a bit uh, with my stress uh, management. The other thing too is when you're doing mundane tasks, which we all have to do, like the laundry or washing dishes, use that as a moment, as a time to be in the moment. So a lot of us, when we do those mundane tasks, we tend to think about all the stressful thing that we're doing throughout the day. Rather than doing that, while you're folding the clothes or while you're washing dishes or while you're vacuuming the house, focus on what you're doing at that moment. Focus on washing the dishes, the way the water feels, the way uh, the dishes getting clean, the soap that's on your hands. Try to be in that present moment and you'll end up finding that those activities can actually become quite meditative. In fact, that's kind of the basis of meditation is to be in in the present moment. Um, another thing you can practice, which uh, is actually quite um, effective, which my, my girlfriend taught me, was something called slow walking. This is where you go on one side of the room and you walk to the other side of the room, but you do so as slow as you possibly can. So it may, ta- you, it may take you a full 10 minutes to make it to the other room, but it p- puts you in the present moment because you're focusing on every pressure point with your foot, on every step that you take, every movement, and every breath that you make. And it sounds really, really silly, but you'll find by doing that, it really takes your 
level of stress and just kind of it does sound quite funny actually because you said 10 minutes that's a long time in there <laughs> it, it is and you do it, but you do it really really slow and you take your I mean, you can't even do it for five minutes yeah um it's a form of meditation actually, though isn't it so that's uh, it, kind of it is it is it is and and I've, I've used that practice quite a bit and it's um it's quite it's quite effective i mean the thing i like about doing these mindfulness practices you know for someone who's really busy like myself it, you know, it, it can be hard because I can justify not doing them because I don't have time, right? So I can say to myself, I don't got 15 minutes to spend trying to be mindfulness. I need to spend that 15 minutes getting things done. But the reality is uh, when I invest that 15 minutes, I actually get more than that in, in return in terms of efficiency. You know, it's just like exercise. Like uh, business people who work out find themselves more to be more efficient uh, with their work um, than if they didn't work out. So although they're spending an hour exercising, they're actually getting more uh, back than they're, you know, more in return than they're putting in. Mm. So time-wise, you're trading, you know, 10 minutes for 20 minutes back in, in, in productivity. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, exercise. Exercise is one of the best ways to get your body to, to manage stress, you know, better. But you need to modify the intensity of your workout based on your current level of stress because exercise is another stress Mm. Uh, on the body. So if you're if you're in an extremely stressful situation, then your workout should be very uh, recuperative. It should be slower. It should be more meditative. It should be relaxing. It should feel good. Get a little bit of a sweat, but it shouldn't feel like you're beating the crap out of yourself. If your stress levels are are not bad, then you can push your body harder harder with exercise and really focus on things like maximizing performance or building muscle or burning body fat. Awesome. Yeah, I've uh, taken some of your mindfulness tips, actually, because uh, you're the same as me in terms of you used to hate, like, washing dishes and stuff, right? That kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, so do I. So nowadays, I'm, I focus on, I try and be mindful, and it sounds a bit, it can sound a bit woo-woo to the average person, isn't it? But when you just focus on what you're doing and just stop trying to rush it and get it done, it's, it's much more of a, it can be a little bit more therapeutic then, so it's kind of the opposite to stress then, isn't it? It's really weird. I actually uh, appreciate doing some of these tasks now. I used to hate doing them, but uh, and I think it's just I've developed a different association with them because now I, I, I feel good while I do them, and um, it doesn't. It's it, I I don't I end up doing more of them. The funny thing, my girlfriend loves it. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go wrong, mate. So yeah, talking about training, then uh, we we talk about this. We talked about this on the last podcast, but I'd like you to reinforce for the listeners. So let's just talk about briefly about full body training versus split routine training now uh, i saw one of your posts recently awesome post so you're constantly getting the message out there that generally when you hit the body parts more frequently so in other words you're hitting the full body let's say two or three times a week generally you're going to yield better results than if you were to do say um split routine where you're hitting you know a different body part every day so you're only hitting the body parts once a week as opposed to two, three times a week when you're doing full body. So yeah, talk to us a little bit more about that, Sal, if you can. Because I know you said about 70, 80% of people respond better to full body. But um, if you could give maybe the pros and cons of both, that would be great, mate. Yeah, I mean, the big difference is frequency. I mean, you nailed it. It's really just frequency of, uh, of stimulation of the muscle. So if we really boil it down to that, then it doesn't make a huge difference whether or not you're doing a split or a or full body, you're hitting the you're hitting each muscle group. Um, if you're hitting them around two or three days a week, that's that seems to be ideal uh, for most people for for strength gains, muscle gains, um, and then of course down the line, fat loss as a as kind of a, a byproduct of that. 
Um, but besides that, you know, uh, full body for most people, full body routines work work really well because they require less time in the gym as well. So, if I took the you know the average person who wants to become you know more fit and I split their body up and had them come into the gym four days a week because one day we're doing four body parts, another day we're doing four body parts, and so on, so on. I can get that same amount of work done usually two days a week if I hit full body. So it tends to be more convenient as well. And there's also this kind of, there's also this systemic muscle building effect that comes from training the entire body. You can see this with uh, studies that examine, um, you know, bilateral training. There's study, and we've known this for a long time, where if you train one arm, most of the strength gains will go to that one arm. But will also have measurable strength gains to the arm that wasn't trained. The body almost tries to balance itself out a little bit, even though you don't work that arm out. Now, of course, there's still going to be an imbalance there, but I think it's pretty fascinating that there's some carryover to the other arm. When you train full body, you send this kind, this louder uh, adaptation signal as a whole than you would if you split the body up a lot. Now, in terms of the benefits of body part splits, if you're training with a lot of volume, that may be more convenient for you to do it that way. If, if you're trying to train the entire body, let's say three days a week, and you're doing you know, uh, 40 sets per week per body part, then that means each workout, you're going to be doing about anywhere between 12 to 15 sets per body part per workout, and you train the whole body. That's an hour and a half, two-hour workout it may be more beneficial uh, just from a convenience standpoint or maybe even just from a fatigue standpoint to break up the body so you're not in the gym three days a week, you're in the gym six days a week, but your workouts are only 45 minutes to an hour long uh, instead of you know, you know, two hours long. So it, you know, it really depends on the individual and what you're looking at. But again, if we're talking to the average person who is not this super advanced person who's going to be doing just tremendous amounts of volume per week, um, mainly because their bodies can't handle it, um, then full body just seems to work uh, the absolute best. But you know, if we boil it all down to frequency, then it, I really don't care who it is. Most people respond best to when everything's equated, right? Volume, total volume per week, exercises, everything. People tend to do better by hitting their body parts more frequently, again, two, three days a week, some people, maybe even more than that, um, than less per week, you know, doing all the volume, uh, the same amount of volume, but only hitting each body part once a week. Mm, makes total sense. And yeah, right now, <clears throat> oh yeah, so just to clear that up, there has been studies that showing this. I know you've posted on your Instagram before, studies to show, if you could just really briefly explain, like in terms of the amount of sets you were just saying then, because obviously if you're doing split body part, generally if you're doing one body part, you're doing lots mm. of sets and lots of different exercises on that one body part versus right. doing full body. You could potentially just do one or two exercises per body part. But the overall, so, so that frequency obviously plays a massive part. And the studies have shown that generally mm -hmm. full body will work better for, for the average person. Is that right? Yeah. And in total volume per week um, is probably anywhere, I would say, if we're looking at the average person, anywhere between nine to maybe 15 sets per week per body part. When you start to get more advanced, that number can get as high as 30 uh, or even higher, especially if you add the genetically uh, gifted. Um, and then, of course, if you throw anabolics on top of it, mm -hmm. um, genetically get gifted individuals with lots of experience or, who are very advanced with their training, 
they can they may thrive on even higher amounts of volume, uh, you know, as high as 40 and 50 sets per body part, uh, you know, per week. I know at one point, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was doing something like 60 or 70 sets per body part per week, but of course he was, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. Um, so, but for the average person, you're looking at about nine to 15 sets total per week. So let's say you're doing full body, um, you know, nine sets would be three sets per body part uh, each workout, mm-hmm. right? Three sets on, let's say, Monday, three sets on Wednesday, and three sets on Friday. If it's more like 15 sets, well, then we're, we're around, you know, five sets per body part. Um, so that's right around where people, the, 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 the evidence shows to be the best. And in my, in my experience, it seems the best to be the best. I mean, really what you're trying to do is you're trying to send a signal to the body to adapt. Um, and I think it's important to note, not to go off on a tangent, but I think it's important to note that the adaptation process is different than the recovery process. I think people confuse the two. You know, we think of recovery as the adaptation process, and that's largely because they, you know, adapting and recovering happen uh, simultaneously oftentimes, um, although they're not simultaneous the, the entire time. Much of what happens uh, during one happens for the other one. But they are two different things. Think of recovery uh, like you would think of healing. You know, if I, if I were to go handle rough objects with my hands, I would chafe my skin and cause a little bit of damage. My body would respond by healing that skin. That's the recovery. But once it's recovered, my body then aims to adapt to make my skin more resilient to the same stress or the same insult uh, at another time because your body's always trying to be better at what it does most often. It's always trying to adapt to its environment. So the adaptation process would be adding a layer of skin to my, uh, to my adding another layer of skin, which eventually would turn into a, uh, you know, a callus. So recovering would be the healing process. Adaptation would be making the skin stronger so that it can be more resilient. Well, that's the same thing that happens uh, with your muscles. When you're working out, there's, a, there's some damage that occurs, and your body is trying to heal from that damage. But it also sends a signal to adapt uh, to become stronger. And we can, we can generally measure that adaptation process through something called muscle protein synthesis. And what we find in studies is that that protein synthesis uh, signal it, it, it elevates very quickly post-exercise. I think it's like after four hours, it it's really starts to climb uh, post-exercise. And then it peaks at anywhere between 24, 48, maybe 72 hours, depending on the individual. And then it starts to drop very quickly. So it goes up very quickly, peaks, and then it drops very quickly, even though the recovery process may still be going on. So I know a lot of guys uh, and girls who work out, they – they think, oh, you know, I'm doing this full body workout. I just worked out Monday, today's Wednesday, but I'm still a little bit sore. Should I work out again? Well, the recovery process is still happening, but that ad- that adaptation signal likely has dropped because it's now, you know, 48 hours later. So it's okay to hit that muscle again. Um, maybe reduce the intensity so you don't create too much more damage, but you want to send that signal to ad- adapt again. So it's important to understand that. Once you understand that you're in the gym trying to send an adaptation signal, and that damage just tends to be a byproduct of that. I think people train a little bit smarter when they know that. Definitely. Yeah, I can totally relate to that because um, I always tell 
tell people a similar thing, really, especially when it comes to, you know, like the recovery, the recovery, for example, uh, you, you, you say this uh, quite a lot on the podcast, but it always resonates with me because, you know, if, if you always say if you're aching generally longer than for longer than like a day or two, then, you know, you've generally done too much because the body will prioritize recovery over growth, essentially. So that's that's kind of what I always regurgitate, if you like, to uh, to my listeners. But um, yeah, so like just for the listeners, you know, they think they've done a good, successful workout. A lot of people, if they're aching for, you know, let's say two, three days down the line, they feel like, yes, I've done a great workout. But generally, that means you could have done too much, Sal, if you're aching, aching for longer yeah. than a day or two. Yeah, soreness is a terrible, um, a terrible gauge or indicator of uh, of effectiveness. It just not, it just doesn't tell you if what you did was effective. But what it can be a a, a sign of is maybe you overdid it. Um, not always, but many times. So yeah, if you're sore for two days, if you're really really sore for two days or so or, or three days, you probably overdid it. And, and now why why is that a bad thing? Well, I think you said it. Your body will prioritize recovery over adaptation because your body's resources are limited. And, it, and healing comes number one. Like it, it's going to want to heal over adapting. And if, you're, if that damage just gets overwhelming, you're only going to be stuck in this healing process. And now what does that look like? What does that feel like? Well, it means, you know, and, and many people have experienced this. You go to the gym, you beat the crap out of your muscles, you get really, really sore, you wait until the soreness goes away, and then you go back to the gym and you beat the crap out of the muscles. And in the meantime... No strength gains, no change in your body. You're just getting sore and healing, getting sore and healing, and there's no adaptation process. Again, using the example of handling rough objects, if I my skin heals and then it goes to add another layer to you know to make my skin tougher, but I don't allow that process to happen because I'm 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 keep sandpapering my fingers over and over again. I'm just going to dig myself a deeper and deeper whole and my body's not going to be able to adapt. It's just going to be worried about healing. And that's a really crappy pay- place to be and it's extremely frustrating because and it happens more often to the, the hardcore, you know, trainees. It, it, you know, the people who are lazy don't, n- don't tend to get stuck in this, but people who work out really hard, who have the determination, they have the tenacity, you know, they're 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 very motivated, they want to change their body. It's very frustrating to go really hard and consistently in the gym and to get really sore and to go back to the gym and do it over and over again with no progress. You know, and I mean, I know people who, who do it for years. They're so tenacious, so hardworking that they'll just stay at it and stay at it and stay at, stay at it. But then when you sit down and you say, okay, what have you gotten for all this effort? Like, you know, in terms of progress that you can measure. Um, and they'll sit there and go, gosh, you know, my, my, the weights I'm lifting are the same. Uh, my body hasn't changed. Sometimes they, re- they they reverse because they keep pushing even harder. I know a lot of people who do that, where they'll 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 get no results, um, and so they think, well, I must need must need to work out harder. I got to push myself even harder. I used to do that when I was a kid, and I push myself so hard I get sick, um, and no results. And so, um, very frustrating place to be. But once you understand that the the whole goal is to get your body to adapt to set the right things in motion, to trigger the adaptation response, and then to create an environment where adaptation is favorable, that environment being sleep, lifestyle, you know, diet. Um, if, once they realize that, I think people approach uh, their training much differently and their lifestyle much differently. And then they start to look at things differently. 
And then you start to see people progress. All of a sudden, they start to get great results again. That's exactly what I was at, Sal, because bear in mind, I've been lifting weights for like, even when I, so I've been lifting weights now probably for about 17 years. But when I started listening to you guys, you know, I'd already been at it for like 14 years. And my gauge was, much like you were um, prior to knowing what you know, was, you know, how much damage, how much am I aching? I need to go in the gym. I need to also chase in the pump. That's another big uh, error, really. When you're chasing that pump, you're chasing like the feeling of aching and, you know, hammering each body part. And then when I discovered Red Maps, sorry, Red Maps, your first program, it was just an absolute game changer for me. And I think like that program, that first one that you created is just, um, it's just a game changer. It's, it's, it just made me realize that actually, you know, all the stuff we just talked about then, training frequency, I guess it takes, that, that program kind of takes training frequency, you know, to the extremes, if you like, right? But, you know, it's low intent, like the, the, the thought for me of doing, you know, band workouts, low intensity, I thought to myself, you know, is this, is this really going to work? But as you said, then it's just the smart approach is, um, you know, allowing your body to recover and allowing your body to adapt, right? That's right. And, you know, and that's not to say that intensity doesn't have its place and hammering yourself doesn't have its place. The more advanced you get, these are techniques that you can use judiciously. You know when to insert them. So I also tell people that for the most part, lifting weights to failure is too much intensity most of the time. It's not going to yield you any benefit. And, and many times it actually starts to set you backwards. Now, does that mean that that lifting for failure to failure doesn't have some benefit sometimes? It can. It definitely can. If you're somebody who's very advanced, you've been training for a long time, and you haven't lifted to failure in a month, uh, throw it in every once in a while and, and, and then watch what happens. It's just the – I think it's the, the idea that we're, you know, people have where I'm going to the gym to beat the crap out of myself rather than I'm going into the gym to set the wheels in motion for my body to change. What does that process look like? What happens when I do that? How do I maximize that process? Uh, and, and, and don't worry so much about just going in to beat myself up for the sake of beating myself up because, uh, I mean, what a waste of time. <laughs> exactly. That's it. And, and like, I'm glad you said that about intensity as well because I sometimes talk a little bit too much about, you know, um, just frequency and blah, blah, blah. But there is definitely a place. I have mentioned this on previous podcasts for intensity, but it's obviously just allowing your body to adapt to a certain type of training. And that's that's the way I train now. I just always use the concept from your training programs where – because I know you always say generally between about three to six weeks, the body will adapt to a certain type mm-hmm. of training. So for about every three or four weeks, I'll change from, you know, from strength to, to hypertrophy to, you know, strength endurance kind of training. And, uh, you know, the third phase, for example, of your red maps, I mean, that's intense. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right, so, right, uh, right. Absolutely. And it's just, again, you're just, you're, you're just playing that game with, uh, with your body. getting Because, you know, at the end of the day, your body will only be – as strong as it as it thinks it needs to be, mm-hmm. your body's always trying to be efficient with uh, with energy. It's always trying to be efficient with with calories. Because remember, we evolved uh, during you know most of human history. Food was very scarce. Energy was very scarce. So your body it it wasn't going to it wasn't going to keep anything that it that it didn't need. I mean, a good example would be you know if, if you've ever broken a bone and ever had to wear a cast. Um, you know, you wear it for a month, you take the cast off, the muscle has, is atrophied completely. Like it's gone in four weeks, you wear a cast on your arm, take that cast off and your arm will be, the muscles will feel like they're almost gone. Now they, of course they come back once you start moving and all that stuff, but that's how fast the body gets rid of what it thinks it doesn't need. So really training 
you know, is, is telling, is trying to send those signals to your body to tell your body, we need to be stronger. We need to be more fit. And now, you know, and of course that's beneficial because that serves us great insurance for modern life, which includes a lot of sitting. So very few, very little activity and access to a lot of food, uh, which we've never been presented with in, in human history before. So having that muscle, having that strength really does protect you against those things. And of course, uh, this goes without saying, but the, the main reason why people like to work out is to look good and, you know, sculpting your body by building muscle, it looks good and it looks healthy on both men and women. Definitely. And thankfully, I've got a few of my, a fair few of my clients listening to your podcast now. And one of them had a question, which I thought was really good. Different exercises for men and women's health. Now, this uh, really kind of frustrates me when I see it online. And you guys have talked about it before. Is there different exercises men and women should be doing or does it work pretty much the same with resistance training? Now, there's only one exercise that's different for men and women. Those are called Kegels and women will do those <laughs> to, to, to strengthen their pelvic floor muscle after having children. Yes. No, I, I mean, no, no, there are no, um, there are no general. I mean, I could, I, could, I could generalize here and say men, you know, tend to want these kind of goals and women tend to want to do this and. But really, it's, basic, it's, it's all down to the individual. Um, our bodies respond the same to exercise. Uh, the, the most effective exercises for men are also the most effective exercise for women. So at the end of the day, it's, it's really down to the individual. You know, what do you want to look like? What are the things that you need to work on? What are your goals? What's your, what's your experience with exercise and training? What does your recovery ability look like? Um, and then take it from there. But the reason why we see so much in the fitness industry that says, you know, work out for women or work out for men is because in marketing terms, when you can narrow down a demographic and make them feel like you're talking to them, you're, the odds of selling to them is much higher. So, uh, I mean, and I could run this experiment, by the way. You talked about my MAPS, my Red MAPS program, MAPS Anabolic. If I package that in a way to where, let's say I had a, a, a very fit-looking female on the cover and I said, uh, you know, body sculpting, metabolism boosting program um, and, the, you know, change the music a little bit and have the, the demos be done by a fit, you know, type woman. I would sell more of those programs to women uh, than I would to men uh, and, and then vice versa. If I put it, you know, together and wanted to sell it to just men and said, build maximum muscle, sculpt your chest and your shoulders and your arms um, and, you know, had a buff-looking dude on the cover and then a buff guy in, in the videos, more men would buy it. So that's just marketing. That's all it is, you know, and, and you see that quite a bit um, in our space. Um, unfortunately, that has resulted in a lot of misinformation, you know. Like, uh, give you an example. The fitness industry for a while was contending with the fact that women didn't want to lift weights. They tried to figure out how do we get women – this is the gym industry now. How, how do we get women to come into our facilities and lift weights? Because all they want to do is, is, uh, is aerobics classes. And so they came up with a few ways of, of selling weights. And the, one of the ways was to say, hey, look, you know, if you lift weights but do a lot of reps, if you do really, really high weight and uh, high, excuse me, high reps and use low weight, you won't look like a bodybuilder. You won't build b big, bulky muscles. You'll just shape and tone your body. Um, and, and that was all marketing. There was no, no truth to that whatsoever. And so women 
we're like, oh, cool. I can, okay, I can lift weights and I'm not going to get bulky because I'm going to do a lot of reps and go light. And I'm going to tone, which, by the way, was invented by the fitness industry also. That, that word uh, was, was, a, it was total creation. Muscles don't tone. They, I know. They, they I, always, and I always say that to clients. So I, do, I always used to find myself saying that. And now it's like I just exactly what you said. What you're going to say now probably is they either grow or they shrink. And that's what I always tell clients now. <laughs> that, that's, it. that's it. I mean, a muscle that grows feels harder. And a muscle that shrinks feels softer. So if you want hard muscles, then, then you want to feel toned, uh, then you should build them. But this was just the fitness industry trying to get women to lift weights because women were like, oh, I don't want to lift weights because at the time, the only people that lifted weights were, you know, men or bodybuilders. And, and you know, women don't want to look like that. They want to look feminine, right? So, so there's a lot of misinformation. And the reality is really, really lightweight um, and really, really high reps does a terrible job of building or toning or sculpting whatever word you want to use to muscle it just does it's a terrible job muscles don't change the way they look and feel um a, as quickly when you're going super light and super high reps they change much faster when you lift a sufficient amount of resistance and you train anywhere in between the i'd say the three rep range to the 20 rep range uh, that's about as high as you probably would want to go. Not to say that you can't go higher than that every once in a while, but if you want your body to change faster, then you want to stay kind of within that range because those are the rep ranges that affect the the muscle fibers that have the the biggest uh, propensity for physical, you know, visual change. Um, and that's that. So I don't care if you're a man or a woman. So if you're a woman and you come to me and you're like, hey, I want to change how my body looks. I want to speed up my metabolism. I want to you know, a lot of women will say, I want my legs to look sculpted. I want a better butt. I want a tighter midsection. I'm going to train you just like I train a man uh, in terms of, you know, the intensity and the exercises and the rep ranges. Uh, I'm going to train you in an individualized way because you're an individual. And based on how your body moves, that's going to help dictate the exercise selection and, and, and all that stuff. But I'm still going to train you uh, to try and build muscle. And of course, if you're lucky enough to be one of those rare individuals, uh, you know, who does build a lot of muscle very quickly or the, one of the rare females on earth that can do that still doesn't happen overnight. It's not like you're going to work out and then wake up the next morning, look in the mirror and then be like, oh shit, I look like, you know, Martin Silva. No, that's, it's not, that's not <laughs> what's going to happen. You'll, you'll, you'll just get to the point where you'll look in the mirror after years of training and say, this is about as sculpted as I want to get. And that's a great place to be. Then you just back off on the intensity, take it a lot easier and then just kind of try and keep your body where it's at. Superb. So yeah, I'm gonna got quite a few questions left for you, so we'll try and get through some of these now that we'll finish them all. But um I'm gonna dive straight into the uh more kind of deep stuff and maybe viewing a little tiny bit away from fitness cell. So yeah, so you talk you talk um every now and then about your divorce and as that being, you know, that was one of the hardest things, you know, you've ever gone through, which is totally understandable. But you said it, you know, it's helped you grow. But, you know, what are the main things you have learned from the process, Sal, from that process? Oh, man. Yeah, that was a, that's a tough one. You know, I was, yeah. I was married for 15 years and I had, um, I got married very young. I was, um, 22 when I first got married and I had two children and divorce is difficult because, well, for obvious reasons, uh, I don't think anybody gets married with the idea of, of, of going through a divorce. Um, you know, you, you get married with the intention of being with that person for the rest of your life, especially if you have kids with them. And so what takes us to the point of divorce uh, is 
it's years and years of, uh, you know, of whatever you want to, you know, neglect or disconnection or, you know, just turmoil. You know, it's, it's years and years of it, you know, very, I, from the people I've talked to, at least people don't typically just get divorced on a whim. It's, 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 it was a long process. And I think, and this is true for, I'll just speak for myself. Um, it, it was easy for me to look at all the things that my, you know, my, my wife at the time was doing wrong. It was very easy for me to look and point the figure at, um, uh, at her, you know, at, at what she was neglecting, what she was doing to cause the dissolution of this relationship. Um, and, uh, that, you know, that's a, that's a, that's not a very good place to be. I, I, because I can't force someone else, uh, to change. Um, and it also takes the eye off of the one thing that I can change, which is myself. And so one of the big growth, uh, you know, periods that I went through, through the divorce was reflecting, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop thinking about all the stuff that she did and what, and, and her role that she played in this divorce. What role did I play? You know, what, what could I have done differently to change this and what can I do differently moving forward? Because the last thing I want to do is repeat uh, the same cycle with any future relationships um, that I was going to have. And so there were a few things there that I, I, I was, uh, I definitely, um, you know, was, was the culprit in many things. Um, you know, one of them was my, my complete, um, obsession with, uh, you know, monetary success business. This is something that I think a lot of guys get stuck in, um, stereotypically, but I, I think it's true for a lot of men. We get stuck in the, in the provider role, and um, that's all of our value. And so we put all of our effort and focus on that. And so I worked a lot of hours, man. I mean, when I first got married, I was managing gyms. And I would work, gosh, I'd work from 8 a.m. till about 9 p.m., sometimes 10 p.m., uh, about six days a week, um, sometimes seven days a week. So I was gone a lot, working, working, working. And I was making good money. I made a lot of money. We bought our house because of my job and all that stuff. But uh, a relationship, it's like anything else. It takes uh, daily uh, effort. You know, it's like a garden. Like if you don't water your garden, the, the, the flowers aren't going to grow. And I wasn't watering the garden. I was working a lot. Then I went off and, and I, it, you know, I, I, I stopped managing gyms and I started my own business. And I, although I didn't work as much as I had managing gyms, I still worked a lot. And my efforts and, and my energy was mostly placed there. Um, and that was a big, that was a big thing. Um, I didn't put a lot of energy into um, the, you know, my kids. So then when I had children, I was very loving, you know, I hug my kids, tell them I love them, all that stuff. But I wasn't super involved in the sense that I wasn't part of the, the child rearing process, which I'm sure made my partner feel like she was alone um, in that department. Um, and, and so, you know, these are, those are two big things. Those are two massive things that I had to sit down and reflect upon and, and, and say, okay, um, I don't want to repeat that. I don't want to repeat that cycle of that imbalance. And so, you know, moving forward, I've, I've really tried to, and it's not easy, you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm an obsessive person. I mean, right now with mind pump, you know, we're, we're we have this podcast, we have a YouTube channel, we have written content that we're putting out and guides and programs and it's it's a it's a very fast growing company 
it is extremely alluring to just bury myself into it and just to do it uh, 24-7. Um, but I know what that costs. And to be quite honest, it's not, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It doesn't give me better quality of life. Um, and, I, and to be quite honest, I don't even know if it even results in better success, um, or at least in my new definition of success. So that was, I guess that was one of the big ones. The, the other thing was after the divorce, you know, during the process, we, you know, we have two, two children and, uh, I, I, they're the, they're my priority. I, I remember, you know, as we're going through the process, I'm saying, okay, this, like I, I grew up in a very traditional, uh, Italian household, very close family. Um, we don't have divorce in my family. I think there's one person in my family that ever been divorced is one of my aunts and everybody else, you know, stays married and has kids. And I thought, okay, I, I want my children. I don't want my children to have that typical divorced experience where, you know, dad is, you know, every other weekend or the parents are just bitter and place the children in between each other or the kids don't have consistency. Like I wanted my kids to see that their parents are are still working together to actively raise them as involved parents and uh, that we're both involved in, in everything that they do. Um, and so I made an effort to really work hard uh, with my ex-wife um, at at you know creating that and fostering that and um, we get along I'm better friends with her now than I was when we were when we were married uh, our, we place our children as, as a top priority um, we try to make both of our homes as consistent as possible so that the, the kids don't walk into two completely different sets of rules um, when there's big decisions that need to be made uh, we make them together we you know, when it's a birthday, we try to do things together. Luck, luckily, uh, you know, we have, you know, we're both dating other people. And, you know, I've, I've got a wonderful girlfriend now that I've been with for three years. And she's very understanding. And so she's a part of it as well. And um, But it, is, it wasn't easy, I'll tell you that much. I mean, wh- when you get divorced, the last thing you want to do is work with the person you divorced, you know. Mm. So you, you just don't want to talk to them anymore. Like, okay, I wish I could never talk to you again. But um, many divorces have children. And, um, and, and, you know, you got to put your kids first and work and it's really, it's improved my quality of life. I'm, I'm a better father now than I was, uh, you know, when, when I was married. Um, but it definitely hardest thing I've ever had to go through. It, it probably took me, I'm still dealing with, uh, some of the challenges that come from it. Um, but I, I'm out of the, I'm out of the dark stages. It, t- it was about two years of dark, difficult times for me where I, I had to really actively, you know, manage my, my health and my stress, um, and rely on on people around me to, to keep me uh, strong and grounded because um, there's a lot of a lot of pain, a lot of guilt that goes along with uh, you know, especially with having children and divorce. Thanks for sharing that. And what is your definition of success, Sal? Oh, you know, I, I want to I want to have a life uh, that's worth living for me, I, a, a life of purpose and meaning. You know, I want to feel like I'm doing something good that I can. Uh, feel motivated to do every single day. Now, monetarily, I just want enough money to be able to have the flexibility to do certain things. Like I like to travel a couple times a year. I like to. I want to be able to, uh, you know, have a, a garage gym, which I have now, um, and and I don't want to have to worry about money. But beyond that, I honestly could care less uh, about having tons of money or or any of that stuff. Mm. Um, I want good relationships. You know, I want to be surrounded by people I can who will challenge me 
people who I can sit down with uh, and talk about whatever with, people that I don't feel judged by, um, people who I know are going to be real to me so they're not going to be fake. Um, I want to have uh, a you know, good relationship with my children that's open and connected. Um, it just Really, it's just a, a purpose and meaning driven life. Um, it, it drives me more today than ever before. You know, I, I've always been in fitness or I've been in fitness for my whole career. But, you know, really, I remind myself more today than, than ever before where, you know, everything I say, everything I do now, I'm trying to, to, to help people help themselves through the, you know, through the medium of, of uh, exercise and through the medium of, of nutrition. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can help yourself, of course, but those are the two areas that I have expertise in and those are the two areas that I think I can offer the most in. And so that's just kind of what drives me, you know, mm. I, I think if I... If I won the lottery, um, you know, tomorrow, I would still show up to work and do what I'm doing now. I would just do it for free, you hmm. know. And, and so I think I've kind of achieved the level of success that I've that that uh, that I want. I mean, if I could stay like this forever, I wouldn't need to make any more money. I wouldn't need to do anything else. And that doesn't mean I'm not driven. You know, I still want to do better and grow. But um, I think that's it right there. You know, you see a lot of people who who make a lot of money and and, and they have all the material stuff and they're just miserable, you know. Mm. Um, they don't have, you know, that that meaning and that purpose, and so that's, that's something that I that I seek look forward to now. Might might sound a bit far fetched, but that's actually what you guys have taught me is um is is adding value to the world and how good that actually feels to have a sense of purpose and meaning. Because before I started like growing and listening to more podcasts and stuff. But bear in mind, you know, it, it was literally 80%, 90% your podcast I was listening to for a solid two, three years, and it still is really. It made me realize that actually, you know, you've got you've to add value first anyway if you want to be successful later down the line, whether that's financially or, or whatever that is. But also how good it feels and, and actually you start to realize that, you know, we're purpose-driven creatures and without purpose and meaning, you know, that's, you know, we're living in a, a world now where we're facing an epidemic of mental illness, which are kind of brings me to the to the next question because you said about having the right people around you. And what I found myself is, bear in mind, I've lived in Australia now for almost two years and I moved over to the other side of the world from the UK. And I've got like an awesome tribe back home. And I, the reason, one of the reasons I moved here is because I have got a few friends here, a few close friends. Um, but most of my mates and stuff and obviously my family are back home in the UK and actually went through some tough times because um, I've met an amazing girl here now I've got a, a girlfriend an Australian girlfriend and everything's going really well and making lots of progress but yeah having a tribe Sal um, the importance of having a tribe so that was my question really that's very important right because that's what I've realized since coming here yeah you want people who can um, who you can trust and what I mean by that is you know, I work with a, with a group of guys now who I trust and respect enough to tell me when I'm fucking up. Uh, you, you don't want to, you don't want, you know, it's hard to hear that from anybody because first off, you don't think you are, right? You're, 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 it's natural for you to think that you're, that everything you're doing is great. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. So when someone tells you that's probably not a good idea, um, and you want to argue with them automatically because you, you, of course, everything you think you're doing is, is, is doing great. The other thing too, is when people tell you that you're, that you're messing up, it, it invokes your ego and you want to, de- you want to defend yourself. So you want to be around people that you can really, really trust. Like imagine this, like 
think about somebody that you could trust. Imagine if you tomorrow woke up and uh, you, you know, you, right, all of a sudden you're, for something happened to you while you were sleeping and you thought right was left and left was right. And that was you were convinced that right was left and left was right. And then the person you trust most, somebody you really trust in your life tells you, listen, I, I, I don't know what happened to you while you were sleeping, but you switch things. They're not that way. You need to be able to trust someone enough to be like, okay, you know what? I trust you enough to know that you're not lying to me and I'm going to consider what you're saying. Those are the kinds of people that you want to be surrounded by because they help you grow. You're not going to ever be able to see everything about yourself on your own. It's just not going to happen. You're, you're stuck in your own biased bubble. And so I want to be surrounded by people that I respect and trust enough to be able to call me on my own shit um, because that's what's going to help me you know, grow as a person. I also want to be surrounded by people who genuinely are happy when I succeed and who genuinely uh, care about when I'm not doing so well. Um, you know, rather than the opposite, I think a lot of times we surround ourselves by people who are a little jealous when we succeed. Um, or, you know, who kind of don't care when things are going, you know, you know wrong for us. Um, those are the people you don't really want to surround yourself with. They're not benefiting you and they actually may be, you know, taken away from your, what your, your quality of life. Now, that, what does that look like? Well, usually it means you're not surrounded, you don't have a massive tribe. You know, people who are, you know, have 50 million friends and stuff. The odds that all those people are, those kinds of people are, are very small. Usually it's a few. You know, you got a few core people around you that you can truly, truly trust, who truly have your best intentions in mind, um, who will, who can call you out on your own shit that you trust enough to be able to do that and you respect them enough to do that, who will celebrate when you succeed and who will cry with you when you're sad. Great. Where do you see the future of fitness, Sal, um, in terms of personal trainers? Do you think, because obviously everything's going digital, you guys have uh, built a you know, virtual online business now. So, you know, let's just say five, ten years from now or even later down the line, do you think there will still be opportunities for personal trainers or do you think it'll all be digital? I think there's, uh, I think digital is going to play a big role, but I still, I still think there's going to be that human touch is going to be important. I mean, such a big part of personal training is a psychological factor, the, the walking people through the process of changing uh, their behaviors of, 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 you know, fundamentally changing their lives in ways that are going to make them healthier. It's that process that that's that and you ask any trainer who's been training for longer than five years. And they'll tell you that jokingly that, you know, 75% of the job is psychologist, uh, you know, and 25% is, is personal trainer. So, so I think that's still going to exist. I think that the, the request or that at least the demand for resistance training help is probably going to increase. More and more people are realizing the benefits of resistance training um, as uh, uh, one of the premier forms of exercise. Um, science is now finally, in, in the medical establishments, now finally starting to, establish, to, uh, to, to, to talk about the virtues of resistance training, not just building muscle, but for cardiovascular health, for managing uh, blood sugar, for hormone balance, uh, for managing adipose tissue or body fat um and in many in some medical publications are now saying that it's better than cardiovascular exercise which you know i think you should do both but i think what that's going to do is it's going to increase the demand for skilled trainers because resistance training is a little bit complex it's not as easy as turning on a treadmill so i think the the future looks pretty good i think if you want to be a successful personal trainer um to spend 
time um, and energy on learning how to be a good communicator because, uh, you know, communicating your ideas is, is a very important part of your job. Getting your client to really buy in to what you're selling, um, which is, you know, fitness or whatever, not just getting them to buy training, but actually selling them to, to get to the point where they start to implement changes. That's a big part of your success. And the other thing, too, is really focus on uh, learning how to, how to do correctional exercise. You know, correctional exercise will really separate you from your peers because you'll be able to alleviate people's pain and get them to move more, uh, excuse me, move better, which, uh, I mean, you could do, if you could do that for a client, they're going to be your client forever. You get somebody who's had back pain or, or knee pain or shoulder immobility issues for, you know, five or 10 years and then they come see you and, you know, within a few months, like the pain is gone. Forget the 30 pounds like that they need to lose or whatever. Like they are, they are yours. And so that correctional exercise component can really separate yourself from, from your peers. Great. Have you guys got like another five, 10 minutes or are you running out of time? Uh, we got about five minutes, Mark. Five minutes. Great. Okay. So where do you see mind pump in 10 years time, Sal? And I oh. don't know if, if I can ask you something else with the same question. And what are the biggest mistakes you think you've made since you have emerged? Yeah. So, uh, biggest, uh, I'll start with the mistakes. Biggest mistake we made was not starting our YouTube channel sooner. We, we waited about, uh, two years after we started mind pump and then we started the YouTube channel. I think they would have gone great, uh, together. Um, and we missed out on some growth there, uh, as a result, 10 years from now, I see mind pump as being a, one of the dominant, uh, new media fitness companies. So I see Mind Pump producing some of the best content uh, in media for fitness in all respects, video, audio, um, and written. So, you know, 10 years from now, nobody will be watching network TV. It'll all be online. And if you want anything that has to do with health and fitness, whether you're reading a book, reading a, you know, a, a blog, watching exercise videos, watching exercise movies, listening to podcasts or whatever, um, it's going to be produced under the umbrella of uh, Mind Pump Media. Great. And yeah, just I guess one or two more questions there, mate. And um, yeah, I was just going to say about, about abstinence, the importance of abstinence, because you, know, you guys have talked a lot about that lately, and I am now five days in with no coffee, so I'm having a little tiny bit so pretty much no caffeine. I'm having like a green tea here and there, but I managed to cut that out. And you talk a lot about that, and I know you've cut, cut coffee out recently. So yeah, what have you learned from that, Sal, and uh, how important do you think abstinence is from certain things? Well, there's a physiological benefit from it. I mean, your body adapts to, you know, like caffeine, for example, you know, receptors that the caffeine uh, affects, you know, downregulate, and the body produces less of certain chemicals to balance you out. That's why caffeine has, you know, the longer you drink it, the less of an effect you get. So when you go off, all those receptors upregulate and everything balances back out. And then when you go drink it again, you get those great benefits again. But besides that, I like abstinence from a uh, psychological or some would say spiritual uh, benefit. The disconnecting, the, that is, there's a tremendous benefit from that. Look, every spiritual, major spiritual practice or religion includes some form of fasting or abstinence. And you'll find that when you do it, uh, you'll go through a period of withdrawal and then a period of, uh, where you feel amazing. You know, like, like for example, if you turned off, if you disconnected from electronics, uh, you'd go through a few days of panic and then all of a sudden you'd feel amazing and you'd feel light realizing that 
you don't need those things. Not that you're ever going to go not go back on them, but that just that you don't need them and that you're, you've got more time on your hands to, to do certain things. You'll also start to find that you handled stress or anxiety uh, by maybe going on social media or, for, or fasting, for example, is a great one. When you don't eat for a few days, you realize all the times you want to eat because you're stressed out or bored. And now that you don't have food, you have to kind of deal with those things. So it's really just disconnecting from the material world for a second, giving your body a break, giving your mind a break. And it, it really does. It, it's, a, it's, an, it's an incredible, it's a difficult practice. There's nothing harder than, than uh, abstaining. It sucks. I mean, I went off of caffeine and uh, besides the physiological withdrawals of feeling tired and depressed for you know, a few days or a week, it's the, the, the ritual, you know, waking up in the morning and having my coffee and the taste of it and all that stuff. Mm. Um, but after about, you know, a, a few weeks of it, like, like, man, I feel really good. Like, I don't need it. I don't need the coffee. I feel amazing. And of course, it doesn't mean I'm never going to have it again. I'll have it again and, and, and I'll, I'll enjoy it. But it's nice to know I don't need it. And I think it's important that we do that every once in a while. Definitely. And two more real quick questions. So I know you were 40, you turned 40 years old recently, Sal. Happy birthday, mate. In the, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, obviously belated, not, really belated. But. Not, no, 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 not yet. That's happening in February. I'll oh, be, I'll be, sorry, mate. There we go. <laughs> okay, so ne- next month. <laughs> yes. So you still got a month left in your 30s then, mate. So that's, that's all good. Sorry about that, yeah. mate. I uh, jumped the gun a bit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, no problem. Um, but yeah, so you're coming up to 40. How do you feel in comparison to when you were 30, whether that's physical, you know, physically, mentally, whatever? Oh, man. Um, you know, far wiser, far more confident and solid in who I am. Physically, uh, I mean, I'm not going to be as, as I'm not going to be as, uh, as, as as strong or spry and my recovery ability is not where it was when I was 30. Not a huge difference, but there's a difference there. Uh, but I, I wouldn't trade it. I, I, I appreciate the the wisdom that I, I mean, I, the wisdom I have now at 40 versus 30, I wouldn't trade it for for any of the physical, you know, benefits that I had when I was 30. So What's that statement that they say? Um, you know, the, uh, was, uh, what do they say? Something's uh, wasted on the on the young. I don't remember. Anyway, what is it, Doug? Youth is wasted on the young. There you go. Thanks. That's my producer. Thank Youth you, is Doug. wasted. <laughs> yeah, because you know you're young with all this energy, but you've got no wisdom. Um, so, but physically speaking, you know, I can still push my body. I can still work out pretty hard. Um, but I'm not quite. I don't have quite the same recovery ability or the ability to bounce back that I had when I was 30, and that's expected. Well, that's good to know you're human, Sal, anyway, because you're still in incredible shape, mate. So uh, <laughs> it's good to know you, uh, you are human, and it takes you a little bit longer to recover. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, literally, uh, one quick one. One or two sentences, if you, if you could say something real quick to help people build their body and achieve sustainable health, what would that be? Oh, um, hmm. If you improve yourself just a tiny bit every single day, and that'll turn into massive changes down the line. Spot on. Thanks a lot for your time, Sal and Doug. Guys, really, really appreciate your time because I know how valuable your time is nowadays. So can't thank you enough, guys. No problem, Martin. I appreciate it. Okay, catch up soon, guys. Thank you. Bye.